Yeah, album number three. I know it would mean a lot to so many people. I don't know if it's an area that you feel like you said everything you wanted to say in this style. Yeah, I'm up for it. I don't know if I have to do that. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Grenadine! Along with our very special guests, Mark Robinson and Jenny Toomey. Reunited and it feels so good. We'll be going through their entire catalog and rating everything from zero to five stars. Or at least Mark will. Jenny has declined for reasons that doing so is super unpunk. Okay, here's the deal. I worked my butt off on this series. If you're an unrest, Air Miami, Grenadine, Mark Robinson super fan, I seriously implore you to stop this podcast right now because the full interview was a whopping 16 hours long and only about four hours of that will be available without a subscription to our Patreon. Beginning at the major or lieutenant tier at minimum, you'll unlock two massively larger ad-free director's cut edits. You can just buy them outright as well. The major tier director's cut is 100% as I intended. This is the ultimate cut at just shy of three hours long. The Lieutenant Tier Director's Cut, also ad-free, runs a slightly slimmed down two hours. And then there's the free version, which will have ads and will total one hour. So if you're a true fan like I am, honestly, the Major Tier Director's Cut is really the only place to be. Coming up, we've got John Worcester talking about his favorite live albums of all time, Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kind of itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for significantly longer, complete versions of all our shows, just go to patreon.com slash discograffiti and subscribe. Even if you're not sure, just head on over there because it's finally completely free to become a basic member. We've got well over 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon. And that number, as well as the discograffiti inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. And away we go then. Today's guest is a man of action. At 16 years old, he set up his own label called Teen Beat to release the music his band Unrest was making, along with the super cool sounds his friends' bands were making. Over 550 fetishistically cataloged releases later, Teen Beat is still a going concern. Keep in mind, I'm not much of a sports guy, but this man's right arm, his strumming arm, is more impressive to me than any pitching legend in baseball history. There is no doubt that today 
today's guest should ensure that shit like JLo did her tush because it's brought so much joy to so very many. Not to mention the enjoyment that fucking Lim brings to his taste buds every day at noon or thereabouts as he scarfs down his daily peanut butter and jelly sandwich. On a less delectable note, I've unfortunately annoyed him half to death in the weeks leading up to this summit meeting. This, the most in-depth interview I've yet done for the show, my notes amounting to a whopping 201 pages. He's revealed to me a few days ago that nobody annoys him and that I, in fact, both annoy him and trigger him, <laughs> although we've since made up, but I don't hold it against him, even though it brought me to the verge of tears at that very moment, since he is the most incredibly prolific human being whose qualitative yardstick is still in perfect working condition. He's been a musical deity to me for nigh on three decades, so buckle up, because here we go down a deep, deep, pop-intensive rabbit hole. Are you ready? Lads and ladies shooting Roman candles up into the ink-black nighttime sky out in the yonder reaches of Discograffitiville, we have gathered here today in a collective bid to achieve maximum pop perfection. Ergo, here I sit, both proud and humbled, as I get to introduce to you a man named Mark Robinson. Waiting in the wings this entire time for the last four and a half hours has been an extremely patient, special second guest. And now we want to take her out of the wings and right in the spotlight where she belongs. Today's special second guest was a member of the band's Geek, Licorice, Grenadine, Solo, Choke, My New Boyfriend, and Tsunami, among others, as well as recording under her own name. In 1990, she co-founded the Simple Machines record label, and ran it with Kristen Thompson from 1990 to 1998 out of their house in Arlington, Virginia. Along with Teen Beat and Discord, Simple Machines helped document the DC punk and indie scenes. Among the artists released on Simple Machines are Tsunami, Grenadine, Franklin Bruno, Ida, Scrawl, and Dave Grohl, recording under the name Late, which I actually have. I bought that at the time. I think it was listed as Dave G. I had no idea who that was, but I'm Dave G and I figured I'll give this a shot. She also co-wrote The Mechanics Guide, a DIY music guidebook, which was incredibly influential. In 2000, she founded the Future of Music Coalition, a Washington, D.C. think tank that translates the complex issues at the intersection of music policy and law, aiming to help primarily independent musicians with issues such as intellectual property rights, health insurance, and the effects of corporate consolidation of radio in the music industry. In December 2007, she was appointed Program Officer for Media and Cultural Policy in the Media Arts and Culture Unit at the Ford Foundation, where she is currently the International Program Director of Technology and Society. Woof, that's a lot of descriptors. Lads and ladies, please extend a warm welcome to the queen of all that is, as far as I'm concerned, Jenny Toomey! Woo! Hi there. Hey, how you doing? You, as far as I'm concerned, are a legend. I don't know how many people come at you with that word and, and how nauseated it might make you to hear it. But just as with Mark and Mark's label, the stamp of quality with the music that you made and, you know, I'm sure continue to make is such that I knew that if I saw a tape with Simple Machines on it, it was a tape to buy. And so literally, if I saw anything regarding Simple Machines, I would pick it up. 
and not just shoplift it, but actually pay for it. You and Mark coming together as a, as, and I'm going to use this term, super group, and we'll get into what the hell that means to you. Cause uh, <laughs> I, I have, I have a personal theory about super groups, the big super groups, <laughs> like blind faith, for example, it's a sack of shit because when you get the really, really good people and they come together, everyone gets deflated. When you get people who do really well on their own, but they're, you know, not necessarily superstars, it's almost like, you know, when a couple actors come together and they produce A-level heat, I kind of feel like that's what happened here. I mean, all the best aspects of eggs, tsunami, and unrest came together in this thing and had this indefinable other element to it. And one of the reasons why there's a thousand people, I could have said, we should get this person to guest star during this part and there might be some people who are resentful at me for not you know reaching out to bridget or to rob or phil or tim call them all <laughs> uh, yeah yeah but to me grenadine never fully got its due it's always considered to be a side project for you guys it's a side project it's like not seen on the same level for whatever reason as tsunami and unrest all your day job stuff and i always thought it was as good jenny you have told me that you're firm on the idea of not rating this stuff which is fine totally fine mark is going to take up the slack for sure but in terms of all this stuff happening at once it certainly was happening with mark march 16th 92 is when imperial came out April 2nd, 92, a couple weeks later, is when Triology came out, which is the first Grenadine single. So, Triology. Triology. Sorry. Triology, yeah. I never <laughs> knew it actually had a name other than the two songs. <laughs> So for those who don't know, how dare you and shame on you, but Grenadine was formed by Jenny and Mark, not yet Rob at the beginning, soon after the Lots of Pop Losers Festival in the fall of 91. Rob Christensen from Eggs and Sisterhood of Convoluted Thinkers joined a year later on drums. Two records were recorded and a couple singles. Okay, let's talk about whether or not this is a super group, because it's... <laughs> It is often enough. I mean, it was only two people. Yeah, really? it was just it was us only... for a long time. I mean, it feels like a long time because everything was happening so fast. Like in hummingbird time, like if you slowed it down, yeah. it was a lot of time that we were writing right. songs together and getting to know each other and going on trips and driving around the neighborhood, listening to old music in the car. And mm -hmm. when they were slightly formed, we dragged Rob in. I think Tsunami and Unrest played a couple shows, probably like early 91. Yeah, we played and... that kicking giant at the Spiral up in um, New York. And I think at one yeah, of the yeah. times when we started seeing each other a little bit, we sort of ended exactly. up crashing at some house and staying up talking and going out to bars, old man drunk bars, and seeing <laughs> a bottle of grenadine somewhere, and it just became an idea. Yes. We should have a band. That, you guys were at a bar. You were sitting at a bar, and that's where the idea came, right? It could right. have been chartreuse. Was, um... It was neck and neck with chartreuse. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It was. I remember the bar because it was on 14th Street in Manhattan. Okay, so for Triology, which comes out April 2nd, 92, this single is something super special to me. I was never able to find it. I looked and looked and looked when it came out. My friend Brett picked it up and, you know, we had just gotten Imperial. And I remember crystal clear walking down, what's that street in Boston? 
where the Avalon was. I should Lansdowne Street. Yes, correct. We were walking down Lansdowne Street with one of my best friends in the entire world, that guy Brett Becker, listening to a tape recording of the Trilogy single, which he had just purchased. I remember the warmth of the Boston air because it was one of those, you know, this happens every year in Boston where there's a beautiful spring day. It goes back to winter for a few weeks and then you're officially in spring. This was like the first of the spring days and it's just remained one of the perfect memories of my entire life. I want to focus first on the A side, which is probably my favorite Jenny Toomey song of all time. I mean, there's a lot of contenders for the title, but Fillings is a very special song. I always saw it as, and I'm sure I'm way off, but I always saw it as lyrically a sort of almost mundane trip to the dentist, which is transcended <laughs> by this musically unrepeatable, spectacular sequence. And I have a thing about incredible lyrics that precede guitar work. There's a lot of great ones like Little Johnny Jewel and Then I Lost My Senses and Then My Mind Split Open by Lou Reed before the I Heard Her Call My Name thing. And way up there for me is I Am Filled With Stars, which I always thought was the laughing gas, but I just don't know. Now, I love Rob and I love Rob's addition to the band. My personal opinion is that this is the ultimate version of this song. I don't know if the two of you feel that way, but I feel like it lost something on the record only because on the vinyl here, it's one of my favorite songs of all time. It's impossibly moving. Who's on rhythm at the end? I guess you're both kind of on rhythm, right? <laughs> at that very end part, we're just both strumming, I think. Yeah. Generally, though, Jenny is the ace freely of the band, and I am oh with Paul Stanley in right. general. <laughs> There's a stately regality to the way the two of you are kind of doing a pas de deux around each other to the end which is really stunning. And I don't know if it had the same effect on the two of you or if it was just another song. I'm going to kick back now and just listen. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was the features editor of Hustler Magazine, where he served as Larry Flint's editorial point man in his lawsuit against the Pentagon. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who has directed the experimental masterpiece Triple Fisher, described by Screen as, quote, a cacophonous, queasy reduplication of the real that potently situates the Amy Fisher-Joey Botafuco affair within the realm of the Baudrillarian hyper-real, where representations proliferate so rapidly and with increasingly obscene detail as to thoroughly leave behind any concern with the grubby facts and what they might reveal about a lonely teenager and her world. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to end mass incarceration and getting at the root of the crime problem so crimes don't happen in the first place if you believe in liberty justice and the american way rhymes with for the hell of it vote kapelovitz i'm dan kapelovitz and i approve this message looking back on fillings what was the inspiration for that song and is it about going to the dentist no it's not it's not okay but it is using dental metaphors and the stars are not laughing gas they are fillings because if you open your mouth there are all those stars in there 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that was just like a, just a little love letter to Mark Robinson that I wrote when we were just starting. And it was very much me trying to play guitar in a different way. You know, Tsunami was much more bratty and brash and, you know, catchy and loud. And it was trying to sing in a more quiet way. I got to ask, were you guys a couple at this point? Was there ever any intimation of the two of you being romantically involved or was it never on the table? <laughs> We were dating. We dated. But, you know, DC had a strange way of dating where people didn't overtly date a lot. There was a lot of sneaky dating. And I think also I was non-monogamous a lot during that time. So I, I would date different people at different times. And Mark as well had mm -hmm. different sweethearts at different times. And then we were also like always on the road or always in these weird public places. So there really was kind of like a clandestine quality to romantic relationships in the DC scene in some ways where, you know, you'd leave the group house where you were totally observed and get in the car and drive somewhere <laughs> and, you know, listen to 1950s doo-wop and make out, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I certainly love it. I, I, I want to hear what Mark has to say about all this. I can't be the romance expert for no, DC. I, I don't think that was, I mean, certainly with you and I, that was that on accurate, I think, especially the doo-wop part. <laughs> You know, the reason I ask is because there's this at arm's length vibe of this thing having a lounge concept to it. And to me, that's a loss leader. There's aspects of it that are loungy and the cover looks like a private press thing that would be left alone to gather dust in a thrift store for years and never actually be purchased. But that's just, I think, to throw the scent. And the scent to me is, you know, especially for Mark, because your work, your, you wear your emotions on your sleeve. Mark, at least in my experience listening to his work, it's all there in the music, but lyrically, you know how Paul McCartney started off with scrambled eggs and then was like, oh, it's yesterday. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jenny? I guess, but I mean, I think I might be disagreeing with you because I think Mark has a huge range in how he writes his songs and some of them definitely are aloof and other ones are insanely intimate and very, very like literal, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I've heard everything Mark's done now officially that he's been at the creative head or co-head of and there's nothing that moves me emotionally or even comes close to the extent that Goya does. And parts of No Politos, it's almost too much sometimes. It's like pours wide open for me. And I don't find that, not that the work doesn't move me, but there's a vibe about it. And so when I ask if you guys shared anything as a couple, I'm, I'm really just saying, am I imagining that this is a wellspring that this is coming out of? Because it could have been an accident or I'm reading into it, but there's a lot of love in the those grooves, whether for the music, each other, the scene, whatever it is, there's palpable wellspring of love in there and not the disaffected at arm's length lounge scene kind of thing that mm -hmm. oddly to me, that has almost no relevance to the record. It absolutely doesn't. You know, if there's no. one benefit of talking to you is please don't ever think of it that way again, because it, there was nothing. <laughs> I mean, first of all, those people would have much better musical chops than either Mark or I. <laughs> Right. I remember talking about it and hearing these other bands and thinking like, I can't even remember what those other bands were, but they would have like horn sections and things. And as Jenny said, they're way better musicians than we were. So I think if we had had that know-how, I would have maybe welcomed that. But I'm glad that that didn't happen because I think we created something pretty unique. Like you said, personal, whereas the, yeah, the cocktail stuff would be more at arm's length. Can I say though about the thing about it being the most emotional of Mark's music? I don't know. I think Imperial has the 
same level of emotion around that time. And maybe even the record after that, what was that one called? Perfect Teeth, yeah. And Perfect Teeth. There are songs yeah. on both of those that I think are just as raw or open, romantic. And I think some of it might also just be the age we were at. Like you feel mm-hmm. a lot really acutely. Yeah. Um, you don't stop feeling, but like those feelings are kind of new in some ways. You're just sort of figuring them out in the music. And like maybe we were egging each other on a little bit with that too. It also happened very fast. Like it wasn't like anyone was going to pay attention to it. You can call it a super group all you like, but like <laughs> we were playing for 15 or 20 people. Right. Sometimes. We, I mean, we also, I mean, how many shows did we actually play? Like probably five, maybe, or six. Like I can't remember, I can't remember but it was not. Right. So as far as that single, as far as trilogy, that's a hard five stars for me. Right. We're rating it now. Jenny's side is definitely a five. My side's not bad. I'll give it a... Evening those out, I'll give it a, a 4.3. How's that? You got it. You got to be accurate. Oh, no. He's all, all of his... <laughs> He's writing, he writes all of them down, yeah. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, November 3rd, 1992, Grenadine's Goya comes out. Tell me how it works, because it's a triad here. Teen Beat, Simple Machines, and Shimmy Disc. So how did that work with the three companies releasing it? Well, first, I think we wanted to record a record. And then for some reason, I think Kramer had said, Kramer, who had recorded an Unrest record, I don't know if I told him about Grenadine or something happened. And he was like, oh, why don't you just record with me? And I'm not sure if he, he must have offered it for free, because I don't think we would have gone otherwise. So we went to his fancy studio in New Jersey. And I'm not, I'm not sure when we recorded it if the plan was to release it on Shimmy Disc, but that's what happened. The way that the two of you mix, but then more importantly, the way that you differ from each other's styles is really what mm-hmm. makes the record because you set up this concept. And actually, I'll just quote you, Jenny, because in one of the press pieces you sent me, it was a terrifically pithy quote about your approach here, which is, we wanted to see if people would get it. We said Burt Bacharach wrote the songs, but we're singing about fucking and Kramer. And then <laughs> and then you go ahead and actually kick to the side some modern attempts at lounge music by saying, love Jones, it's like they're making fun of the music and themselves. It's like a Weird Al Yankovic thing. We have a respect for the music. And I want to say just before, because we're going to stay on this for a little bit, out of curiosity with that Weird Al comment, how do you feel in light of that comment about Mark stepping wildly over that line into Weird Al territory by the time of No Politos. Well, so you and I violently disagree about that. We do. We do. It's okay. I mean, are we in No Politos? No, we're not. We're not. I'm just... (laughs) All right. Let's stay stay with Goya. I don't don't need to blow my No Politos right now. (laughs) But I think that disparity of approach, because it seems like that there was a conversation about this, that Mark is coloring inside the lounge lines, and you're specifically coloring way out of the lounge lines in order to keep people on their toes, right? Is that yeah. is there some truth to that? Or? I don't think so. Yeah, I just think we like things, you know? Like, that's one of my favorite things about Mark is, like, he's a true fan and, like, totally open. Like, oh, I like this. I'm going to try this or whatever. So I have a question here from Mark's group, the Teen Beat Forever. My group? What's that? Teen Beat oh. Forever. Kent Burt. Not my group. Oh, okay. Somebody else is running that? Yeah, I don't have nothing to do with it. I mean, it's I am, I am happy that it's there. I don't take any ownership of it. So Kent Burt 
from the Team B Forever group asks, uh, some iconic releases are unavailable in the streaming download world. Is there a chance that releases such as Catch Pellet, Yes, She Is My Skinhead Girl, Bavarian Mods and other hits, and then specifically Goya for our purposes, will make an appearance on Bandcamp, Spotify, iTunes, and other digital platforms? Maybe. I certainly hope so, because it's the album I love the most that's not represented in all the world. It's the album I love the most that's not on there. That's nice. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Is there a reason why it's just business dealings kind of thing? Or I don't know. I think both Mark and I are kind of forward-moving fish. We sort of deal with the future. He's maintained the label, so he, he is re-releasing things. But there's a long period where you weren't doing that, right? It just seems like there's a moment now where a lot yeah. of re-release but yeah i'm not against it also it's essentially a shimmy disc release so i think that was something that stopped it from being on streaming platforms initially okay we got to get that up there i mean no Politos is up there uh but goya for whatever reason was passed over if i have to go down to congress and march back and forth on the steps with a placard i'll do just that you just tell me what to do where to be <laughs> right but you don't need it because you have the cd or the record or something right yeah i know but for all the tools out there who don't utilize physical copies <laughs> when they listen to their music the tool uh, like calling people tools yeah is that okay is that you're doing okay yeah is that all right i mean i wouldn't do that <laughs> no but you're not with that kind of guy i'm a little bit more of a douche um <laughs> you're a sweetheart Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now, every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discography's Patreon family, the Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personal personalized backstage pass for a buck and for the cheapskates homeless people and all the bums sponging off mom and dad don't care just join it's now completely free to join as a basic member and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming lou barlow Corey hansen mark robinson comp metal machine muzak as well as the triple album rock opera El harmony i created with joe kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off patreon episodes that's it back to the show Let's talk about the music on the record. I really want to kind of bring the microscope all the way down. Any recollections you have of the songs themselves, uh, you know, especially because I'm listening to this thing over and over and over at that time and throughout all my life. And there was no internet back then. All of my friends were listening to it just as much as I was. At the time, I was 20 years old when it came out. My friends would usually come gather at my place uh, in New Jersey, the birthplace of Goya. And we would listen to it all the time. But I knew nothing about the making of it. So Goya itself, like you said, an old radio buzzes into earshot. 
And the style of playing by the three of you has a cozy familiarity to it immediately. It feels like putting on an old pair of slippers or an old robe or something. That's one of the reasons I think why when I think of this record, my knee jerk is it's a around the hearth style Christmas album because of that coziness. And then this is the one that's always quoted. All the groups, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. Goya! Exclamation point. So it's this song that's being quoted. What's the beanery idea? Was it, we're going to, every kind of bean we're going to have an album for? Was that the idea initially? Or I think we had this interesting fascination with the Goya brand for some reason. Well, I think like part of it also was we were so poor and vegetarian. Both of you were vegetarian? Yep. Yeah. It's a total takeoff on the tequila song. You know, it's like an homage right. in some ways, right? I think so. That's actually like probably one of my favorite songs that we did because we're both in there. I mean, it's just so good. I don't know. The guitar line. It is. It's a perfect opener. It's a great intro. And then, you know, the first real song uh, as such is Philco. There's definitely a 1950s kind of feel to it, which at that time, especially when everyone was, you know, was flinging their really long hair around. I'm talking about the guys and the super fuzz big muff pedals were, were all on at maximum distortion. This was very welcome for me to hear this. And all my friends, we could not stop playing it because wherever you went, it was just distorto this, distorto that. And this was an oasis. Decca, I would say that there's a strong likelihood that if I went back through all of the songs, Mark, that you've ever written, this is the one that is the most emotionally moving for me. And my favorite part of it is that, you know, nobody knows what the hell you're singing. It feels like, you know, one of the touchstones that I had brought up before in our prior interview was... I'm Not There by Bob Dylan, where it's clear he's making up these words as he goes along. And yet there's this timeless profundity to what he's singing about because he's connected to something. And again, could be totally reading into it. I don't know if you made those words up at the mic, but whatever it is that you're singing and the way that you're singing it is fucking heartbreaking to me, man. Thank you. I'm sure I did not make it up on the spot. I don't know if we talked about this, but Jenny couldn't figure out the lyrics and then she sent it to me and I could also not figure out the lyrics, but I think they are actual lyrics. (laughs) They're not nonsense, but thank you. Are you singing about the record company? Oh, Decca. No, I mean, yeah, I think that's kind of like Goya. It was just like some weird brand name that was kind of glommed onto for some reason. You know, it's just about friends. And even though I don't know, I can't tell all the lyrics. It's definitely like name calling like friends of mine in there being young, excited, in love, etc. Before we all died inside. (laughs) (laughs) Put up some barriers, put up some like masks. But I also think like all the names, my names of my songs sometimes are a little bit more about the song, but a lot of the early stuff was just things we liked. Like I think Decca and Philco mm-hmm. was the radio, what the radio. Yeah, it's, it's a radio. Yeah, I think it's so. the Philco. So the beginning of the album, Philco. Is that a brand? It's a brand of radio? Or? Yes. Okay. And Decca was just a label that we loved. And we kept buying records that had come out on Decca. You know, there were all those mm-hmm. music of your life type. Totally. They turned down the, the, didn't they turn down the Beatles? They might have. Decca turned down the Beatles? Decca turned down the Beatles. Okay. But music of your life, that was the slogan of the radio station that we listened to, I believe. But it wasn't the music of our lives. It was the music of other people that were older than us lives. But then it became, right, it became the music of our lives. And then I only have eyes for you, which the Flamingos, in my personal opinion, the Flamingos have the most expansive, profound echo that any doo-wop group has ever 
ever found, especially in that song. Your rendition of it's fantastic. It's the two of you on background vocals, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. You sang on that as well. Yeah. I mean, that one was probably we heard it while we were driving around the car. And it's also mm-hmm. just, you know, it's kind of a perfect love song. Like there's nothing you want more than to feel like somebody is looking at you that way, you know? And then it's, I think, one that works really well with the kind of production choices that Kramer, in those moments, like where you feel like you're being seen in that way, you're kind of underwater. You know, there's this kind of like blurry <laughs> quality, which I think he was able to add to the song. Before we pass through to In a World Without Heroes that the end section of Decca where Rob kicks in, he does some really wonderful work and even though in talking about the triology single and saying that a couple of things maybe had been lost in bringing a third person on for those tracks, his work on this in general is crucial. I mean, it has again another, you know, emotional component to it that's inherent only in the drumming and you can tell that he's in 100 percent. i don't think he writes anything on this it's just on the next record right i think so yeah he wrote um, the, the single that end of that deca song as well is very much like the same thing we were saying i think it's very association the bumpas at the end of it bum, bum. okay so in a world without heroes another great great song always loved the song title and i love that you don't use the song title as great as the title is, it's not even utilized. What is that from? Where did you get the inspiration for using that? The title? Yeah. I believe it's from a record by the band Kiss. Written by Lou Reed is kind of a title I liked. I mean, even Decca, I don't think, I I can't remember if the word Decca is used in in the song. This is another one. It hits me really hard emotionally. I am very much a wuss, and especially as time has marched on, I can get to the verge of tears very easily. Actually, crying is not that incredibly difficult to me anymore, which is nice to be able to access that. But this song, Decca, there's a few on here that it's very easy for me to get there just hearing it. Is this just a pure expression? of love is there something i'm missing where you're trying to like smuggle in some kenneth anger stuff in there that i'm not <laughs> cognizant of no <laughs> okay yeah no it's just it's just similar to the other songs just you know emotional just like jenny was saying you're just feeling all these new feelings at that age and there's just so much of it you just have to let it out and it almost feels like a jumble of emotions that are not necessarily even linear the line i do know what it's like your hair it's almost like these things that make some kind of actual emotional sense just becomes so moving like the idea of this thing to you that it all kind of tumbles down into like a cut and paste version of romance but i love Mm -hmm. that i love the line about i can see your teeth beckoning me from across the room that's my favorite line on the, the whole thing. yeah i'll have to go oh. back and listen to the lyrics. maybe i'll look at jenny's lyric sheet I'm, yeah. try, I'm just wondering if i would have used the word beckoning but i'll have to listen to it i love yeah. the idea of teeth beckoning me from yeah. across the room is fantastic and then last song on side one is pinky tuscadero and again one of the great hallmarks of your creative relationship is you know you have this very direct connection emotionally with in a world without heroes and then very much a minor key mysteriousness comes rolling in with pinky tuscadero and jenny you're so good at that i don't know what you were like at the time but your music portends that you had these storm clouds of emotions you don't seem like the kind of person 
who maybe you freaked out in song and then were level-headed for any time you were actually not writing or performing. Is that what wound up happening? Because these are some seriously moody songs. Yeah. I can sense a bit of wanting to obfuscate the real identities of people and the, you know, sort of cloaking with poetic language so as not to offend the guilty parties. For example, if you look at Bob Dylan's Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, if you listen to those words, that could have been written as, you're a mighty fine gal and I sure do love you, but it's certainly not nearly as interesting as my warehouse eyes, my Arabian bells. You know, as, as I've gotten older, the idea of connecting to language in a way that's ineffably communicative versus something that sounds nice, sounds fancier, sounds more aesthetically pleasing. You seem to have notions on both sides. Like, for example, never saw a head-on car crash so squarely. I can't tell you necessarily what that means, but it's a lyric that hit me in a palpable way and never stopped doing so in the decades that I've known it. I really don't even know if there's a question here. I'm just trying to zero in, I suppose, on your creative approach and how, if if at all, it was modified to work with Mark or tease out some of the elements in his work so that together you guys went to an even higher place than you would have on your own? There's been so many questions. So like one, the one about like, are they obscured? I don't know. I mean, there's a little bit of a code, but like, uh, you know, having a conversation with someone and writing a song are different mediums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are parts of it that are for everyone and there are parts of it that are just for yourself. I generally don't write a song because I'm like, America needs to hear this. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> It's more like, you know, I have to figure this part out. It's synthesizing emotions. Mark, I believe you used the phrase to trick people into coming to the record using lounge. I was just trying to interpret what you were saying. Yeah, it seemed like even though that was the vibe it was trying to set up, it was the most disposable aspect of the record. The lounge thing was like putting on a jacket on the way outside. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll do this kind of thing. I don't see that as the heart and soul of the record. And as amazing as the first side is, I think side two is even better. I, I think it's nuts how good the second side is it's really really nuts the collection of songs here cherishino whose song is that because that's a sort of instrumental prelude i'm not sure who wrote that one i think that was you mark i think it probably was yeah okay and there's another but, there's a little association reference there too right totally yeah we're definitely just, especially in the name a word and messing a word up like triology and cherishino are you guys actual association fans i not am yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> not like me, yeah, 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 that's clear. I mean, I mean, not for any reason. I just haven't put the time in. I hope over the next number of years I have the opportunity to put the time in. They're pretty darn good. Um, okay, so then we get into the songs as they are. So is it Gillen or Gillen? How do you pronounce your middle name? Gillen. Except sometimes. When are the times when you're not Gillen? I don't know, Mark. That was your title. That was me? Oh, that's right. That's my song. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe sometimes Jenny was not Gillen. <laughs> <laughs> this song always felt like just just rays of sunshine. The whole thing has this air of inclusive joy about it that always struck me as so irrepressible. But I never knew sort of where it was coming from or what specifically may have inspired you to, to write this about. Do you remember that, Mark? Or? 
was just that youthful emotion, being in love stuff, emotions that you can't keep in and presenting them very heartfelt, but also maybe kind of in an abstract way, like we've been talking about. That's a great song. I love the album version as much as the single. Then we get two songs that to me are the peak of your partnership. I always felt this way. I always felt like the one-two punch of Ticket and Demarest was almost too much. I mean, incredible. Ticket is to me like the sort of textbook Jenny Toomey song in its construction and its approach. And then Demarest, same exact thing where it's like autobiographical to the point of almost silliness. It's it's almost like a straight diary entry that's not even modified. But yet the emotion behind the music has always been so moving to me. And yet if you were just to do a spoken word thing and just read it, there's nothing inherently that's moving about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've always loved the most about this song. Tell me please about Ticket. I know nothing about this song except that it's one of the all-timers for me and the I'm not bitch and I'm not prepared to pay the price of admission. Such a good chorus. To me, the height of the record is the chorus of, of Ticket. The whole thing peaks for me on that. What do you remember about, I know it's the most fucking boring ass, uninspiring question, but keep in mind, 30 years of not really knowing where this is coming from, do you remember the inspiration or what wound up giving birth to this? I do, but I will I will plead the fifth. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in relation to it, uh, you know, the one thing I will say is I was not angry at Mark in this song. Good, good. <laughs> I think that's only fair to say. I mean, I also think it's code. Like, you know, at some point with your levels of attention, a lot of my songs will be talking to other songs. Like I'll be mad at a person or I'll be frustrated about a song. And so... I'll actually steal lyrics from other songs and talk back to them. There are like dot, dot, dots between these songs. And again, there was like four bands actively playing at this moment and lots of touring and lots of friendships and romances and things that happened in the world at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think this one is very much about taking risks. I think also that there's a feminism component that runs under everything, just because it's hard to be a girl at that moment in time and not just to understand that there were two standards for how you had to behave and just really like hating it <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. highlighting it that um, the risks that boys were taking were approved and the risks that girls were taking weren't approved. Everything had to be navigated. And it was all happening in public because we were in such a close-knit community of humans and clubs and labels and bands and whatever. So I really like that song. I love how frisky it is. I like it that it's both kind of joyful and cocky, but it's also like pretty direct. You know, it doesn't sound brokenhearted, no, uh, but, it, no. but, it, but it also doesn't sound disconnected. You know, the best songs kind of can have a range of human emotions in them. It's catchy. It's it's really catchy. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's probably the best one on the record. Really? Yeah, I tend to agree. I'm not sure if it's my favorite. I mean, it's always been Ticket and Demarest for me. And then you always have great couplets in there, like Substitute Erosion for Explosion, that are not capable of being written by any writer other than you. That's a Jenny Jenny Toomey line through and through. If I took the Pepsi taste test and it was a blind listening thing, I'd be like, that's Jenny Toomey. Yeah, I don't know. It's a lot about people pretending to take real risks and not taking risks. So like it's a, it's a litany of metaphors about people who are pretending to take risks who aren't really taking risks and figuring out that's not that attractive. All right, so Demarest, 
Please talk to me about the song. Is this something that uh, came together when you were there in Demarest, or did you bring I'm all the songs? I'm pretty sure. I mean, the music was definitely written and rehearsed before we got there, but I'm pretty sure the lyrics, I had to write, you know, like, what am I going to, is that going to be another instrumental, or am I going to write some lyrics for that? So that's how the, it ended up Demarest, because that's where the town, where the studio was. First of all, I want to give props to Rob, because his drum track is really an elegant masterpiece, especially toward the end of the of the song, after you go, let's go, and then he really carries it I did. La- <laughs> I forgot about that. I was like, that is so funny that i did that and that it's on the recording what that you <laughs> say that phrase i just said let's go <laughs> you always you have a lot of things like that i don't know let's go it's like let's go before the guitar solo it's pretty great it is it's just well, funny I'm, I'm sure it was it's kind of i'm sure it was like a joke too the mundanity of the lyrics and also at the time definitely sensed that you know you were creating our ironic distance around the idea that this could be seen as being in the year's top 10 but i did know if to you it was a ludicrous thing uh, the idea that this could be in the top 10 of the year i i love that because you know to me it's very unironically in the year's top 10 best but (laughs) uh, but it seems pretty clear knowing your work your aesthetic slant and things like that that you're poking fun of the idea i don't know i mean i don't remember exactly what i was talking about but i don't think i was talking about our record being in the year's top 10 best really yeah in that that line yeah one of of the year's top 10 and Demarest. Could be anything. Rhymes with Demarest for one thing. <laughs> well, it definitely I'm, wasn't music related or like pop chart related or anything like that. I'm going to pretend like you're not saying that because to me that's a brilliant interpretation of it. So this is a la la la, I'm not listening kind of a thing. Okay. really really wonderful song again fillings it's a version with rob i do feel like you weren't able to recapture the same kind of lightning it's not the demo but the original version there's something about the performance between the two of you guys i think i don't think rob is on there is he i don't think there's drums on it the original is just so intimate and beautiful that i think we decided to not have the drums on i think we have him at the end like at the last part he comes in just at the end part but we sang and played the whole thing until the drums come in just at that strummy end part there's i feel like on the goya version the guitars at the end glide and have a tasteful elegance to them the one on the triology single there's a the tiniest touch of urgency and intensity to them that is no longer part of this performance. It doesn't send me to the exact same place, but it's splitting hairs. Decca reprise. I love the Nancy and Lee tribute. If anyone could possibly fill those shoes, those almost unfillable shoes, it would be the two of you. Although it's almost like you have side-by-side stuff going on. You're not really doing the songs together. So it'd be interesting if you did Grenadine, but as an actual duo. Yeah. I mean, do you remember you mean, what he's talking about, Mark? The little bit that we clipped off a record and just stuck in there? Oh, okay. I mean, there, there was a lot of theft associated to right. Grenadine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of stealing things and just putting them sure. places and not saying anything about it. I think we just thought that was so weird. That, I mean, it, I, love, I love that little talk between them because it sounds so intimate. It's like they're becoming little children <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Nancy, is it time to go? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Now, are the two of you, are you super into Lee Hazelwood? I enjoy his music. I don't know it very well, but I'm playing a Lee Hazelwood song with my friend Brian Dewan. We're doing a Halloween show where he's like playing accordion and zither, and we're doing one of his songs. No more hot dogs, I guess. (laughs) What's that from? 
I don't I don't think I know that one. He's Lackins, is that right? Let me make sure I'm not embarrassing myself, which of course I do. It's a good Halloween song, I say, as he exhorts his girlfriend to come over by a very specific time so he can cut her head off and then she won't be able to eat any more hot dogs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> it is something of a magic trick, though, having, I think Jingle Bells is only on the CD release, but there's some kind of a magic trick involved with not really having made a holiday record, but simply having a, a CD-only version of Jingle Bells on there, yet it leaves me with that, you know, holiday album kind of a feeling to it. And again, I think it's the warmth that the record creates. And, you know, ultimately, I think of all the releases that Mark's ever had, like I've said so many times, it's the most emotionally fulfilling release for me of Mark's entire catalog and of yours, Jenny, which is interesting because typically any kind of fixation on lounge music in general will usually hold those kinds of fixations at arm's length. And this releases as hard on sleeve as it gets. So if you put it up against something like She and Him, Opal is to Mazzy Star as this record is to She and Him. That's how I see it. She and Him plays at the kind of feeling that the two of you almost can't help but achieve. I give this a, a very hard five stars. It's one of the greatest albums of all time that I've ever heard. And anyone that comes within my orbit has to hear about it. And it's the one I'm going to be really kind of pushing through when I get the series edited and up is like, this is such a classic and you really, really need to listen to this record if you're not familiar with it. Mark, what do you think? Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. Jenny's songs are all definitely hard fives, as you call them. I'm going to take some points off for my last minute lyric writing for the Demarest song. I'll give it a four, what do you get? A uh, four point You're talking three? about the single? Four no, I'm talking three? about this one. I thought you were asking okay. me about this one. Right? Yeah. 4.3. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's whatever it is. It's a, you're, you're wrong, but yeah. <laughs> can, can I make an argument for his last minute lyrics too, just in Demarest? Because I really like the free association lyrics that Mark does, like tower, shower, tower, shower. I don't think there was a shower. I'm not sure if there was a tower. <laughs> there might have been a tower. Shower might have rhymed with it. There might have been yeah. a shower. Tower might have rhymed. I don't know. But like, I love it. It's just, it's like, it is just like this kind of playpen for the soaring voice. You know, it's lovely. So I would not okay. rate this because it's totally unpunk <laughs> to rate it. But were I to rate it, I would rate it higher than 4.3. I wouldn't take points off for his songs. Oh, so since we're buzzing around the hive, were you to rate it? Which, of course, you're not going to. I'm absolutely not going to. Yeah. What would, you, what would you give it were you to do it? If If I was to rate it. I would rate it higher than what Mark said because he was taking points off for something I didn't agree with. So if that's why he's getting a lower mark, I'm making the counter argument. If he had actually written the lyrics, they might not have soared the same way, those songs. There's no question that we're right and he's wrong. Those lyrics are friggin' <laughs> Those lyrics are spectacular. They cannot be improved upon. And like you just said, you know, the mundanity of the poetry of what, you know, just communicating these experiences and the counterpoint being this super elegant music, it lifts it up to a level that you could not do were you to, you know, search through your thesaurus and try to come up with these incredible, impressive lyrics. Demarest is perfect. 
There's no, it cannot be improved upon. <laughs> it's absolutely perfect. Don't rewrite it, Mark. Yeah, don't. All right. Please. <laughs> Love of God. Okay, so the next time that Grenadine is back in session is after the unrest and tsunami shared experience at the second stage, the summer 93 Lollapalooza. November 8th, 1993, the Grenadine single, Don't Forget the Halo, backed with 777. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, this is the only thing that I didn't know existed that Grenadine had put out before wow. this interview. That's like and one of the best ones. Exactly. So when I heard it, I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I've listened to both now a hundred times. Mark was very careful to tell me that one of the songs here is the best thing that you guys ever did i think early on in our in our texting this is an incredible piece of work this single comes out and the thing's perfect it was actually the biggest surprise of the entire trawl is this single that for me slipped through the cracks so don't forget the halo is absolutely gorgeous i love how rob delays his entrance on drums for for a while the warm cozy blanket of a chord progression is classic jenny is this something that you had written specifically for grenadine as well it definitely felt like a grenadine song it is absolutely very grenadine i think and then how did this come together i mean after goya had you two talked about doing other things or were you just going to go on and never return to this? Did you leave it a kind of open door? It wasn't our main band, but I think it was still a band. And it was a project that we were continuing. I don't think we ever said, let's get the band back together. I think it was already, we were already together. The two of you both, I mean, you have, have you ever counted how many bands you've been in? And then have you ever broken up a band? Or do you just go on to other things and forever leave the door open? I mean, I think the door is open. Like, you know, we'd have to buy the guitar that Mark sold. <laughs> like, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't surprise me if we played a show sometime before I died again. Before you die again? No, before we died. Okay. Uh, I don't think we slammed a door. It, we never, like, decided. I, I think that if you want to understand why we never played again, and maybe you'll disagree, Mark, I think the people who killed Grenadine were tsunami and unrest because we got successful in those. I mean, mm -hmm. those were the cash cows for our labels. That's how we actually paid to put the other records out. And that's where the energy was and the support we got. And so we just weren't in the same cities anymore. We were usually touring. Yeah. I think that's right. I love this. Another one where it's just like, I cannot believe how perfect this release is, but definite hard five stars. Yeah, I like it. I'm going to give it a 4.7. That's probably, that's the most as high as I've gone on anything, right? I don't oh, think I can go any higher on that. That's yeah, Mark's I'm, I'm not going to. Five would be... <laughs> Flying too close to the sun. Right. Then people are going to think I'm really full of myself and I think I'm great. 4.7 is really too high. I'm going to promo this whole thing <laughs> as Mark Icarus Robinson presents. <laughs> and also, no Kramer anymore. We got Jeff Turner behind the boards. Jeff Turner, really? Yeah. For that That's one. Interesting. Yeah, I was I, trying to remember where we recorded that. And that was, I guess right. it was GNS. In yes, Arlington, probably. It was GNS. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then we're skipping past the dissolution of unrest. And the next release that we have is August 31st, 1994. 
the Christensen EP. So this is a companion mm-hmm. single to the Nopalitos record. It came out before mm-hmm. the record. The A side is on the album, and the B sides are remixes of songs that also appear on the record. I know this, of course, because of the overwhelmingly fetishistic notes on Mark's Teen Beat website, which is one of the main... Is that the right words. word, fetishistic? Totally. Or just in-depth? Maybe fetishistic has a sexual connotation. It depends on what, what hour of the day. Yeah, exactly. You know, because of your sultry New Orleans lighting style in your bedroom, I'm going to stick with fetishistic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So talk to me about Christensen. That's Rob's song on the A side, obviously. I mean, he's not here to talk about it, but it's a uh, autobiographical song, I think, about his dad. Yeah. So Rob, I don't know if he was excited or not very excited to grow older and look like his dad, but the song is certainly lyrically based in that particular neighborhood. It's named after a bar restaurant in Marblehead, Mass, where he grew up. For a second, I was like, how do you know that? And then I realized that you're looking at my website. (laughs) Yeah. I transposed (laughs) everything into my document. So I basically have your website in my document. But The Barnacle is a really cool song that kind of takes things away from the typical Grenadine model of just the two of you writing. I think it's the only one that he wrote for Grenadine. Is that right? I think so, yeah. You sang it, you wrote it. And then on side two, we have Snuck, which is a Steely Daniel remix, and Srew, which is a Mexico Big Sky remix. I think originally my idea was to have the whole album sound like these remixes, but um, there was uh, some disagreement in the band. But we got to have both because these two are on the single. I'm glad you were outvoted. <laughs> I am, because I'm glad it was kind of kept here as this. You certainly, for Nopolitis, which we'll get to in a, in a minute, it certainly took a sharp turn in the road. It's not at all the same kind of record that Goya is, but this would have made it a very, very different record to follow in these particular steps. So, Jenny, how about you for the Christensen single in general? So... We haven't talked about The Secret, Rob Christensen. I think Rob is way more musically trained than either Mark or I. He also is somebody who is really whimsical. He would write a musical at the drop of a hat. He doesn't mind to take the joke past its normal level of silliness to the extreme level of silliness. <laughs> so I'm just like hearing him on the 777 absolutely you're right if credit continued we would have been more in a trinity like a equal parts trinity whereas he came in more as like the sideman to our sweet songs for the first record and like that pushing it to do it one more time like we're all game to do that but i suspect he was the one who was like wouldn't it be great if we did it one more time or whatever because you think it's <laughs> over but then it's really not over and it should have been over <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so for this one i'm going to give two stars wow But it's not a reflection of the barnacle, the power of the song that is going to be reviewed with the record. And then the remixes, you know, I don't feel like are of the same caliber. Right. I feel like, yeah, every, I feel like every time you, because you've given, there's quite a few twos that have happened before this one. Only in the 1980s. (laughs) It's straight Um, up from there, baby, except for this. (laughs) <laughs> I think the barnacle's great. I love the remixes. I love the packaging. Oh, I'm going to give it like a five. We're point four. I'm not going to give anything a five. I would only rate it in order to demonstrate that it's not a two. Oh, well, then what would you give it? <laughs> well, I would just say that considering the fact that we should have headlined Lollapalooza with it. <laughs> with the- <laughs> it's, it's at least a three. <laughs> 
So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our Slag Off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. All right, so then comes No Politos. Now, this record is endlessly interesting to me. You know, it was certainly clear at the time that you were looking to affect a change in the group. You weren't looking to replicate Goya. You know, that was pretty clear, really, with the Christensen EP release. But I remember, because I, you know, I bought this the day it came out, and I remember my reaction to it. And if I'm going to be honest, which of course I'm going to be, and you know, I'm paying for this, right? I'm a poor motherfucker. I, I'm really poor at the time. Because in 1994, I had been suspended from film school, and I attempted to make a feature. I spent a 100 grand. And then on September 25th, 1994, I had to shut down production. And man, did that hurt. It was really, really rough. So at the very least, here was a grenadine record to make me feel better. And then the thing that I came away listening to that record, the very first thought I had was, fucking Mark Robinson's trying to fly this plane into the side of the mountain. That's the first, (laughs) and I still, I still believe that. I think, I think, and you're going to tell me what you really went through, but I think you have so many bands at your behest that you wanted to see what, kind of like what a kid would get out of taking a magnifying glass to an ant. Like, I have the power to do this to it. I know you're going to set me straight, but I'm telling you, as somebody who was and is a huge fan, and somebody who spent what might have been half of the money that I had at the time on the CD. The record was probably cheaper if you bought the vinyl. Yeah, if only I had a time machine. That being said, there's stuff I really love on the record. But out of my own sense of curiosity as to why Sammy, my man, suddenly became a thing, you know, I'm talking about your Team Beat release. The fixation on Sammy became less of an inference and more of an overriding aesthetic thing. Okay, so I'm so curious. The outset of No Politos, going into it, was there an idea of let's not repeat ourselves? What were the conversations like? I don't know if we had conversations about what we were going to do. Jenny wrote some songs, I wrote some songs, we rehearsed them and we liked them, maybe. So at what point, Jenny, did did it become obvious to you that Mark was doing something different? Because your songs, they're not the exact same songs as the ones on Goya, but you're bringing something similar to the table. There's no ironic distance in your songs that I can see whatsoever. So I'm curious as to when you saw what Mark was doing and the the sharp left, I'm not saying it's, you know... (laughs) There must have been like a, whoa, that's an interesting choice. When was that when you discovered that? So, first of all, thank you for buying our record on the first day. That's no problem. Super nice. And I totally remember, like, I, I remember getting a ride from Roger Marbury on the back of his motorcycle to go up to yesterday and today to buy the Rights of Spring record on the first day. Like, you know, buying the record on the first day is like, you get five stars for that. So high five 
for that. And I also know how like those records that you care about feel like they're intimate friends and you feel like you understand them because you've created an entire world with them. Yeah. So I felt that with Rights of Spring. I got really frustrated when they became Happy Go Lucky, which like the same people in the same band that like had these kind of incredibly emotional songs suddenly were doing these kind of silly songs. Um, I love that band now. <laughs> I eventually loved that band too, right? What you have to do is give up your sense that the band exists to solve the problem that you want them to solve for you or whatever, or like that they are actually living in the world that you're living in. And they're actually just working out things themselves in different ways. So like for me, it wasn't Sammy Davis, I don't think. It was Tiny Tim, which makes right, it even more right, extreme. Right. I remember I came over to Mark's house one time and he was so into Tiny Tim. I don't know why. He'd got a bunch of records, maybe at a thrift store, maybe he'd saw it and saw a movie about him. And he was so into them. Did I think some of them were hokey at times? Like I would tease him about them at times, sometimes. But why was he getting into a band with someone who couldn't play fillings all the way through over 90 minutes at the beginning? <laughs> Of grenadine. It's because like we're totally open and we're just trying to figure out how to make this music together. So yeah, for me, it didn't have that kind of thing. Well, that was needlessly denigrative, I think, because the song Fillings is a masterpiece. Uh, your songwriting capacity and potential is unquestioned. So he's getting into it with you because you really know what you're doing. It's not like he's constantly inviting songwriters to write songs with him. I guess, but I don't think he's saying that girl really knows what she's doing. I need to get her in my grenadine band. So, you know, it was much more about like the playpen. It was like, we want to yeah. get in this place and make this thing together or whatever. And maybe right. the playpen's the wrong word. It's more like the sandbox is a better yeah, way yeah. of saying it. Because we're not babies. We're just children. Um, <laughs> and also, as a fan of yours, I don't feel a proprietary thing. I don't feel like, you know, how dare they do something different because they're my band or anything stupid like that. It's also probably important for you guys to know that I think that Bob Dylan's self-portrait is as crucial a record to own as Blonde on Blonde. So, you know, in terms of things making a sharp left or authorial intent and fucking with the audience, and I'm not saying that's what you did here, Mark, but I'm curious if that was what you did but um that to me is just as important as the ineffably great material that an artist produces i don't think i was consciously trying to quote fuck with the audience i certainly wasn't trying to crash it into a mountain i think i was just trying to do something different and i think also i don't know i was just trying to have as i have had on tons of the previous releases discussed on this podcast i've done a lot of humorous music before like i was listening to tiny tim i think there was also a tony randall record which is pretty great called vovodio do which is an influence <laughs> I don't know how to read Yeah, I guess it's the context because the context is such an emotional fountain for me anyway. You guys may have seen it a different way. So to bring this very much a, a sort of at arm's length kind of a feel right. in, into that context yeah. was at the time off-putting for me. I can see what you're saying. Like this, my songs are a lot different than my songs on the first record. And I think it's hard when you have two songwriters in a band that are doing their own songs. You're trying to make it sound cohesive. And I think we're diverting and kind of a little bit on this record, whereas Goya sounds a lot more cohesive. Yeah, this is intentionally schizophrenic, I feel. Right, which is a lot like other records I've done. To yeah, totally. And the thing that really shoves a knife into my expectations is Mexico Big Sky, because right out of the gate, there's a classic Mark Robinson song done in classic Mark Robinson, sunny day, strummy style. So before you go ahead and drop the bomb, you make it very clear that like, I'm still 
still doing what you thought I was going to be doing. And then you pull the fucking tablecloth out. <laughs> and, and, you know, right, what, so that one could have been on Goya. Yes. Yeah, 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 definitely. And the character that I envision you as for this record is somebody that walked off the screen from Prince's Under the Cherry Moon. He's got a pencil mustache with wax on it. I'm saying in my mind's eye, this is the guy that you're playing for Onopolitos. He exists not in color, but in black and white. And he says things like, 23 skidoo, cash on the barrel head. He's that guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is what characterizes this record for me. That being said, there's staggeringly great work on it. But there's also some stuff on here that intention-wise, I'm dying to know if it was done in a Weird Al style, if the idea was to elicit laughter. You know, drug dealers with their dangerous guns, there's no ironic distance there at all. I, oh, tons of ironic distance, right? I mean, the whole yeah, thing. But is, right? In other words, is this, I mean, <laughs> is, this, is this Weird Al territory? Well, I don't uh, think so. I mean, Weird Al is like song par- I mean, he just parodies existing songs. But are you going for a hearty laugh? Are you actually going for, yeah. a, for laughter? Okay. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I laugh when I listen to it. Yeah, I just want to know. Of, I think it's one of the, my favorite things that I've ever done, actually. <laughs> That's like amazing. That I, I, song. <laughs> yeah, and just because of that, it makes me love you even that much more. Uh, even though I don't, I don't personally have a connection to that type of material, but I love that you favor that over something like Mexico Big Sky. That to me is and honestly, I didn't, I didn't actually get the chance to listen to this one before we did the podcast. I don't remember Mexico Big Sky, but I remember this one. So right, um, right. yeah, Mexico Big Sky could have been on Goya in some ways, except it has less of a Christmas feel and more of like a desert feel, like a spacious desert feel. You can look at the lyrics and you can remember what it was pretty quickly. Yeah, you could call Mexico Big Sky, just call it false advertising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that one's definitely more like a Goya song in how it is. And then the What's Happened to Today's Youth and Hell Over Hickory Do. That one especially, and, yeah. And Roundabout <laughs> on a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, that's like if uh, if the White Album was just Honey Pie over and over again. I also remember writing, I was a little less prepared than I was. I mean, I like wrote Demarest in the studio, and I think I wrote a lot of the lyrics to this one in the studio as well. Of my, yeah, you my did. Song. In kitchens. Yeah. Like, you go up and you hang out in the kitchen and write the lyrics. Right. I wanted to have, like, a horse clomping sound. So we went out and bought a coconut, and we, like, sawed the coconut in Warren's garage, and all the... I think... I don't know if we drank the milk, but it sounds, like, pretty authentic. Um, ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. It is great in its own way. I just... My initial palpable reaction to hearing it was intense for me, and I never really was able to outgrow that feeling, but it's made it historically just very interesting for me to think about it, because authorial intent became the cloud that hung over it, but I wasn't able to ask you any questions about it. But the one-two punch of Mexico Big Sky and Steely Daniel, to me, is like Ticket and Demarest, except instead of peaking late in the record, I feel like the record peaks. Actually, the first three songs because i love um really love puddle so 
Mexico Big Sky, great song. Steely Daniel is, I always thought, the best song on the album. Great, great song. I think so too, yeah. Agreed. Can you talk to me about this one? You know, I think I'm road weary, and it's just the feeling of what I'm having at that moment. But the second part is really strange. The stole the finish from the start part, and I yeah. totally forgot this, but we took a flight to Detroit together, to Livonia, to record with Warren. And we got on the road late. We were on whatever the road is that takes you to BWI airport and it was backed up and we missed our flight so for the first night we had to stay at a hotel that was like an airport hotel while we were waiting to get up the next morning and go in and on that day it was revealed that Kurt Cobain had killed himself oh wow and Kurt Cobain was totally not that famous back then. I mean, he was famous for music people, but he wasn't like this kind of archetypal artist thing. So yeah. it was like, there was hardly any real news. You couldn't actually figure out where it was. There was like postage stamp sized articles about this. And I remember, I think we called like Matador or we called someplace to say like, does anybody know what's going on? Which is really strange because like it just, it, it explains how small that world was and how things were just like a degree of separation from each other at that moment. Yeah. So the whole last verse is about him killing himself, which is strange. But I, re I remembered that when I was listening to the song later, that it was just it was just so on our minds that when I had to finish that song, that's what came out. Yeah, Mark, she hadn't told you that? I don't think I knew that, unless I completely forgot about it. You mean you weren't spending a lot of time thinking about what went into the lyric writing of <laughs> <laughs> but, but you do remember that. That was so strange. Like, there was no way to oh, yeah. get any information on it. It also felt really intimate. Like, even though, like, I'd only met Kurt, like, a half a dozen times and only adjacent to people who knew him really well. But it all just felt like it was, even though they were much more famous than us, there was no understanding of what was going to happen <laughs> in that space. It all just felt like part of the same pond in some ways. This has always been, from the very first time I listened to it, this has been my favorite song on the record. It's very, very haunting. And it really, really stays with you. That's been my experience with it. And then Puddle, was that the two of you together? When you do instrumental compositions as Grenadine, is it the two of you? I think so, yeah. So Puddle is great. It's one of my favorite songs on the record. There's an uptight jitteriness about it. Did we used to call this one Diamond Girl? Yes. I, I, I only know from better your <laughs> So your notes, Jenny, says Diamond Girl dot dot dot, which I was literally just going to ask you what that was, and the really epic sound Diamond of Bart's guitar. Girl. Yeah. And we used to sing like, who's that girl who likes to wear the diamonds? Who's that girl? The diamond, diamond girl. <laughs> <laughs> so this gives you a level of like the seriousness. <laughs> this is a great song. At the time, I felt like it was on purpose. The record is front loaded in the way that the stuff that people have come to expect from Grenadine would all be segregated for the first three songs. Those three songs have a familiar element to them. And then it's like, you know, good luck to you for the rest of your journey. Certainly for the next, certainly for the next few songs, there's a little bit of a, like, I have no map here. You guys like Puddle? I do. Yeah. Sure. It was really fun to play because it gets so fast at the end. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. What on earth has happened to today's youth? Let's talk about this song. It's an original, right? This was not a cover of an old uh, crooners course, i don't think they're i think the only two covers we did are on the first record oh no there's uh this girl's no. in love with you that's right Oops. Yeah. so going into it 
when you didn't have any material yet written for the record, Mark, were you considering just doing stuff like this as your contributions? Or was this just kind of an outlier? I don't think I was considering anything. I was just kind of like writing songs and what should be my song for Grenadine. And this came out as one of them. I'm trying to think like what if the music came because usually the music came first, like always. Like you can tell with the other two uh, silly songs, if you will, I think those were written. The music was kind of silly. I don't think the music on this one is pretty straightforward. It's not like you can't tell if it was an instrumental track, you wouldn't be laughing. That's not true. The do 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 oh, that part, right. I definitely would. <laughs> but the other the other section, the, the, the nice other Mark. Yeah. <laughs> the cowpoke part, I definitely would be laughing. But the other thing has like an open note and there's it's a minor key. It's an interesting chord that you use. So I'm not fully in disagreement with you. Is this song the reason that you've spent your life recording music? Is this the song? No, but I think I, I yeah, I'm always kind of when I hear it, I'm always I'm like, wow, I did this. <laughs> like where did that come from <laughs> where did it come from it's a piece of mark you know like listen to how he sings jingle bells right on the other record it's not that totally. far away you took a right turn and suddenly you were in hello over hickory do land <laughs> yeah right exactly to be fair, I actually like this one. Uh, I prefer this one to Hickory Doo because every line's <laughs> got jokes. Little Jimmy with his little crutches. Please yeah. give him a hand. It'll thank you someday. I always love when I don't know where somebody's coming from and there's no helping hand in trying to help me acclimate to my musical surroundings. This is, for me, the biggest what the fuck of your entire career. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> My favorite song on the on side two is Immediate. Speeding is awesome. A super smooth classic tune from you, Jenny. Chock full of what Joni Mitchell so aptly and beautifully and unforgettably put as chords of inquiry. Joni Mitchell, absolutely. I mean, this song isn't like her. Her songs are more languorous, but I was always really inspired by her because she she did that same balance of just being a hundred percent a human when she was being expected to be a woman, you know, she like brought her whole experience. Are you a big fan of hers? Because if so, I'm going to guess your favorite album of hers based on the way you write songs. I would give many of her records five stars if that was required. <laughs> My guess would be The Hissing of Summer Lawns is where you're drawn. Uh, Hijira. Hijira is my so, favorite. That's my favorite. Yep, yep, Hijira. But I mean, you know, I, what I love is like, there are these things that are concrete that you find in the room. There's this sort of calling bullshit on herself at times, like explaining the emotions, but also calling people out. Like it's, it's, it's very like three-dimensional human music. But yeah, so I mean, with Speeding, I think Speeding's almost like could be the B-side of Note in His Pocket. It's the bluer version of like kind of the same story. And I really liked the end. That was one that really showcased Rob, the roles that he did at the end. Absolutely, and the, yeah. Right. And the start and stop component. What is Rob doing for work these days? He works at a New York radio station. He's a sound engineer. Yeah. All right. Now we're at the son of a mother's playboy. Let's talk about roundabout on a Tuesday. <laughs> if ever there was a phrase that captured the way that Mark shows up in the world. <laughs> Inarguably his greatest lyric, you're a star, you'll go far, please be my gal. Do you feel like with these songs that you got your Tiny Tim obsession out of your system or did this only stoke the fire for future jazz hand classics? I think I got it out of my system with these two. 
It's right. This is kind of a, of the hell over hickory do ilk. Yes, that's, that's one. <laughs> the, the no bottom end. <laughs> yeah. All right, Drama Club. That's an interesting one. I love the guitar line. It's great. Yeah, me too. This one feels like it's very suspenseful. We're like in like a 1970s suspense film or like we're like maybe early 80s. Like it has that kind of, I don't know, driving in brown cars really fast. There's a different vibe on this one. It, It sounds like you guys are, and this is not in a pejorative sense, it sounds like you guys are exhausted or that there's a feeling of exhaustion about the song. Maybe that's it. You guys had to have been working your asses off. You're in a million bands, running your own labels and side projects falling out of holes in the sky for christ's sake so i I feel like maybe some of that i don't know what aspect of all of that actually enters into drama club but there's a feeling in there that i feel like is different than the other songs for that reason yeah i mean you got it that's all there like claustrophobia i think there's a lot of being observed like at this point now tsunami is famous enough for Grenadine's famous enough that I'm getting written about a lot, and it's all pretty dumb. Like, why did people think that Grenadine was a lounge band? <laughs> like, oh, so much of it is dumb. It's like, and it's dumb. Yeah. Like, a, it's like a dumb game of telephone, where if one person says it, then everybody repeats it, and it gets even more perverse as you go down the line. So you begin to become, instead of like being as open, I think, as we are. Like, I love. Mark's open weird songs because who the fuck cares? It's for us. It's not for you. You're welcome to come observe it, but it's not for you. You know, I think you're right. I was exhausted in this song. And you had a long way to go before you were able to really catch your breath. We have Rob's song next, The Barnacle. I guess this is about the the hesitation of turning into your parents. And I always felt like if I try to become like my parents, then I'll wind up with all the unique individuality I need. Just as a general thing, if you're like kicking and screaming against the inevitability of taking on some of those attributes, you're going to end up like your dad or your mom. It's definitely a strong song. Snick is speeding but a remix right let's look at the whole thing in an overview so i always thought that it was a front-loaded record but i always felt like there was a possibility that it was purposely done that way again lots of paranoid thoughts of being fucked with on purpose gleeful paranoia i might add because i love it so much i love to be musically fucked with definitely a handful of irrefutable classics on here but then i feel like there's a little bit of a frankenstein job pieced together from novelty songs and left turn experiments in a way that makes it in a good way certainly not trying to repeat goya i give it three and three quarters stars Wow. So you went from five to three and three quarters. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can see it's it's not as cohesive as Goya. I think there's still some gems on here, though. Without a doubt. Uh, but it's not supposed to be cohesive, right? I mean, it's not, it certainly doesn't strike me as something where that was the intention. No, I, mean, I don't think that was the intention with Goya either. It just happened to be cohesive. Right. Boy, what did I give Goya? <laughs> I love four, four point three. I gave it four point three. Okay, Which is so brutal. I'll give it. That's unbelievable. Um, you gave Goya four point three, and you gave Christensen four point four. The seven inch. Yeah, the seven inch. Yeah, I think it's great. You mm-hmm. like that better than Goya? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not keeping a tally. I'm just making <laughs> these ratings. <laughs> okay. 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 Fair enough. Uh, I'm gonna give this a. I'll give it three point nine then. And we should also say the liner notes. Written by you, right, Mark? Gosh. It really reminds me of Lee Hazelwood. So Lee Hazelwood's records were always adorned with these self-effacing, 
what the fuck style kind of like bob dylan's 60s stuff but instead of being profound and prescient it was just a sort of a screw job knowingly and then i feel like you were trying to that like you were walking in the lee hazelwood liner note footsteps here so tell me what happened after that you know i know this is the last grenadine release was there ever talk about doing anything again was it just never discussed or explored what happened after this generally with these things it's like somebody moves away did like rob move to another city at some point or i don't know I i think that might have been what happened but i don't remember Again, like I said, you know, Mark, if you want to practice next weekend. Um, <laughs> yeah, album number three. Look, my Tiny Tim stuff. You, you know what I think would be awesome? And I would love to be involved just in helping get the word out. If you guys were to do anything involving a Kickstarter, I will do everything I can in my power to help get the word out. If you ever wanted to collaborate on something and look for absolutely nothing, except to know that one day I could potentially own some songs that you came back together to do. I know it would mean a lot to so many people. I don't know if it's an area that you feel like you said everything you wanted to say in this style. Yeah, I'm up for it. I don't we'll know definitely if I have do that. Anything. We'll need you to write. I'm not sure what the real. Kickstarter will be for. For money to do it. Oh, I don't think we need money. We didn't have money to do it the first time. So. <laughs> don't tell people that. Just pocket the money, for Christ's sake. You know, before we kind of retool the interrogation light so it's focused squarely on Mark's shoulders, I'm curious looking back on that intense time where you're producing all this music if grenadine does feel like the side project that it definitely was at the time or what the takeaway was from that time working with mark and am i blowing the whole thing out of proportion were you guys not this amazing jewel that i see you guys as was it just another thing you did how does grenadine stand in your view all right so for me i'd say i am the audience for grenadine yeah (laughs) Uh, you know like so it's perfect right i mean that's that's the whole thing like if you write music with people you like a lot in a way that like is respectful and fun and you put yourself in it, then why wouldn't you like it afterwards? And I guess not all of the music that I've ever done, I love equally, but I really like Grenady. And I think it was really, it, it was, it happened so quick. It really captured a moment. We worked with Rob who like stepped in to be part of Tsunami when we had to figure out how to do our music. And like at the time we were at also like, it's hard to, even though you're only what, four years younger than us. And if you were in the scene that we were in, it was hard to ever imagine anyone would be more successful than, you know, like if you could pay your rent and you could put out records and you could like, that was success. So like we kind of had that at that level. And it was only later when the sort of parallel independent world crashed into the major label world that you suddenly had to sort of second guess all of your natural instincts about like oh is this the right thing to wear or can i say this or does that seem cool jenny i don't even want to let you off the phone as mark can attest to nothing does for me what grenadine does not to mention your thousands of other bands so i can't thank you enough and I'm dead serious when I say that if you're truly serious about re-sparking a collaboration on Grenadine, I'll do anything I can, put any kind of time into it, and I want nothing out of it except just to have the ability to listen to it when it's done. Well, that's really sweet. And yeah, this whole thing has been a lot of fun. And I'm really glad that you liked the music enough to listen to it. And thanks. You're very unusual. Several what? hours. <laughs> unusual? <laughs> Thanks so much for listening so carefully to the music we made a thousand years ago. 
All right, that about does it. Stay tuned because next week brings the incredibly special premiere of the three-part Will Cullen Hart series. And part one is the man himself rating the Olivia Tremor Control's music from the unrealized film script Dusk at Cubist Castle, which kicks off an Elephant Six cavalcade over the coming months. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, the great Jenny Toomey and Mark Robinson, Rudy Fishman, Teen Beat Records, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Paho series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages, Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages, Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates Pavement series from 49 to 58. Nirvana, episode 30. The replacements with Bob Mayer, 28 and 29. And number 18, The Pixies. Join us during the upcoming week for Discography's Grenadine Deep Dive. This Sunday, you can expect another deliriously sociopathic entry in our brand new Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. And then this Tuesday, get ready for the director's cut of Will Cullen Hart as he rates the Olivia Tremor Control. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for over a year, and there are now well over 100 Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And it's free to become a basic member now, so go there and do that. Or just chuck me a buck and come claim your backstage pass. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, January 26th, we're coming at you with Will Hart rates the Olivia Tremor Control. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography!